Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 44, Kryptonite Spear. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm your DC Films apologist, Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and who are excited by the Justice League universe. This episode, we break down kryptonite and its use in the movie, why a spear, but not a bullet, the pathology of kryptonite exposure, and getting something greater than the gift of a kryptonite ring. This podcast dives deep into the Justice League universe to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate the film that make up the Justice League universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. You might be expecting a Batman episode, but my recollection is already somewhat faded, and I think I need to wait for home release to do any detailed analysis justice. So while last episode was extremely sweeping and subjective, this episode I wanted to do something more scientific and specific, and frankly easier to gather my notes on. We're starting with kryptonite and ending with the spear, and in between, we'll talk about geology, materials, swords, bullets, guns, and more. Now, most of this doesn't matter if we're talking about magic or fantasy. However, if you enjoy some science in your fiction, some rationality in your reality, then these are the kinds of discussions and analyses that you can have. Not to say that there aren't thematic layers to this too. Continuing with themes of birth and death, rise and fall, we have strength and weakness. In Man of Steel, we learn the literal source of Superman's powers, and he encounters the pillars of his strength and mythology. Krypton, the Kents, Kansas, Lois, Metropolis, the sun, his suit, his heritage, his hope. In Batman v Superman, we're introduced to a canon of Superman's weaknesses and opposites. Kryptonite, Doomsday, Lex Luthor, the Batman, Magic, public perception, loved ones held hostage, uncertainty, and fear. There's enough to diegetically digest in BVS, so we're not going to walk through the whole history of kryptonite in the Superman mythos and its ties back to mythology with Achilles' heel or Baldur's mistletoe, except to say this. Kryptonite began Superman's magic relationship to radiation. This radioactive rock from the 40s predates Superman's solar power superpower explanation started in the 60s. His definitive weakness and vulnerability becoming the inspiration for his definitive strength and powers. Imagine that. As one of the most enduring aspects of the Superman mythos, it's almost a character unto itself, and so the film is careful to efficiently characterize it in a way that's robust for this new series of stories. So let's tease out some of those characteristics. From the Indian Ocean scene, we can surmise that kryptonite is scarce, taking a long and concerted effort to find. Correspondingly, it is valuable enough to pay to have everyone drop everything else to bring rocks to be evaluated. Kryptonite appears to be a byproduct of the world engine and not a piece of the world engine itself. It also appears to be the product of considerable energy, as we see that it's trapped inside a smooth, bubbly, globular, perhaps igneous shell, implying that the genesis of kryptonite involves or requires molten rock. This could suggest some of the thermal characteristics of kryptonite. 
kryptonite. The geologist's comfort with using a hammer to uncover the kryptonite also suggests some of its material properties, namely that he wasn't going to shatter it, vaporize it, or oxidize it, and so on, with a hammer or by exposing it to light, air, sand, or seawater. The inclusion and crystal size means that we can go crazy speculating about formation, so let's just avoid that tangent. Note that the rock is recovered with relative ease, brought to the surface by one boy and easily carried by two, showing that it really isn't that dense or heavy. It's a little smaller than a two-gallon water bottle, which weighs about 16 pounds, and for comparison's sake, marble has about three times the density of water, so a block of marble the same size would weigh three times as much. For reference, lead is about 11 times the density, gold nearly 20 times the density. Most minerals or rocks hover between two or three, and steel is around seven or eight. The emerald interior is luminous, a sub or anhedral crystal, and in less than a minute on screen, without a single line of dialogue or exposition, we've already been shown, not told, so much about this remarkable material. So far, we've learned that kryptonite is rare and valuable, an alien byproduct, seemingly stable, relatively durable, about as dense as most rocks, and a distinctive green crystal. The next time we see kryptonite is in a key expository scene where Lex confirms that it's a product of the World Engine. His scientist, Emmett Vale, provides a five-line presentation which gives us further insight into this world's kryptonite. He says, The fragment is of a radioactive xenomineral. We suspected it might have biointeractions, so we took the sample to Amrid, where they keep the remains of the Kryptonian decedent. And when we exposed General Zod to the mineral, this happened. Profound biodegradation, decaying kryptonite cells. We concluded the mineral could be weaponized if a large enough sample was found. So, from the first sentence, we know that the kryptonite is radioactive and not found on Earth. Even if the latter goes without saying, it's worth clarifying that kryptonite is not the mineral form of the Earth element krypton, the noble gas, and we also learn that it is a mineral and not just a rock. Note that there are other definitions of minerals, such as in nutrition, but in this context, we're going to go with the geological definition of a mineral as a naturally occurring inorganic solid of definite chemical composition with an ordered, often crystal, atomic structure. It should be noted that this definition is more historical than scientific. Practically every point can be challenged, stretched, or has exceptions. While the general rule is that minerals are inorganic, excluding things like wood or pearls, we are uncovering more and more biogenic minerals all the time, and the documentary Life's Rocky Start show how the life sciences and geology are more closely linked than you might initially think. Solid means at room temperature and normal pressure here on Earth, which is why water generally isn't regarded as a mineral, although liquid mercury usually is. The point of all these caveats is to say that the nature of kryptonite is still elusive. I think we can be confident in kryptonite as an inorganic crystal. The naturally occurring part is somewhat iffy. Let's leave those semantics aside for now. And I think we can strongly infer that kryptonite cannot be easily or readily manufactured, even if it's chemical composition is definite or known. Put it this way, Lex has had the kryptonite fragment since around the Black Zero event, but he spends 18 months searching for more of it instead of presenting a successful synthetic reproduction. Simply knowing a material's chemical composition
composition doesn't mean that you can manufacture it in large quantities, especially since minerals are not just chemical composition, but also the structural arrangement. So while we can manufacture diamonds, we can't yet manufacture graphene readily. It's reasonable that Lex hasn't or can't produce synthetic kryptonite yet. Why would he want to? Why would he need to? Well, let's go back to the second line of the presentation. We suspected it might have biointeractions, which is a reasonable suspicion since biointeractions are a big part of the science of minerals, not just the engineering properties as a material or its chemical properties, but also how it may act as a nutrient, a toxin, or even how does it taste? Rock salt, after all, can be a mineral, so it was reasonable to test the fragment on Zod's body, and with that, they learned when exposed, profound biodegradation, decaying Kryptonian cells. Starting with that keyword exposed, the implication is that the effect of kryptonite comes from radiation and not a biochemical reaction. This is reinforced by the visual presentation of Zod's desiccated blood cells decaying with a green tinge of light, but we never see the cells actually physically interacting directly with any kryptonite. The delivery of this information may give us insight into the nature of Kryptonian invulnerability. Implicit in saying that exposure causes decay is that absent exposure, Kryptonian cells don't decay. I have 2,600 comic books in there. I challenge you to find a single reference to Kryptonian skin cells. Challenge accepted. Uh, yeah, I mean, Kryptonian cells probably would not be decaying. That suggests that they maintain their invulnerability even after death to some degree. This is consistent with the invulnerability of Superman's hair, nails, and teeth, which aren't living cells, but keratin or enamel, respectively. This invulnerability seems to extend to the Kryptonian skin suits and some Kryptonian hardware. How the magic of this invulnerability works, we don't know. We can only take science fiction so far into the realm of actual science, but I'm much more strongly inclined towards some form of force field-based invulnerability than actual material strength. Mostly because the strength always recovers, but that's another topic for another time, irrespective of specifically how Kryptonian cells and adjacent materials are invulnerable. The radiation emitted by kryptonite leads not only to them being vulnerable, but actively degrades and decays them. Before we get into the last line of the presentation, let's look at that kryptonite scalpel. At first, this might seem like something somewhat left field, but if we look at history, science, and reality, it's actually a really reasonable use of the fragment. Let's cover it as a blade, and then we'll talk about the fancy handle and light show. In a modern post-industrial society, sometimes we forget that we didn't always use manufactured materials for our tools. Before everything was plastic and metal alloys, we used natural materials, which included stone. In some circumstances, those natural materials and traditional methods could even exceed modern tools. Obsidian is a volcanic glass, which can be fractured to form an edge that's only 3 nanometers thick, or 30 angstroms, which is to say about 30 atoms across. That's about 100 times thinner than the typical mass-produced steel scalpel, or 500 times thinner than the typical knife blade sharpened to about a little over a micron across. Archaeologist Adrian Hannes had such faith in the sharpness of obsidian knives, he elected to have surgery with them. These blades are what are known as prismatic blades. These are made out of obsidian, which is nature's glass. These blades, when they're punched off, fracture with, on a single molecule of thickness. Under a scanning electron microscope, 
If you enlarge the edge of a modern surgical scalpel, it looks like a rusty saw blade. And these just are straight lines. Some number of years ago, I was having to have major surgery done, and I requested that the surgeon consider letting me have some stone blades made. I've got the surgery on film, and it, it shows clearly that his first incision with a blade, it just sank through the tissue. In the case of my surgery, the person was making the blades immediately outside the surgical theater. These edges are so, so thin that the difficulty comes to be how you would package these once they're made to transport them. I've had a number of people ask me, well, why would you have somebody doing surgery on you with stone tools? In fact, we today can create nothing sharper in steel than these blades are in stone. Of course, sharpness isn't the only trait sought after in our tools. Obsidian blades of that sharpness are incredibly delicate and susceptible to breaking and leaving fragments behind. As you heard from the clip, they're potentially so temperamental that they had the bladesmith outside the operating theater just in case. Even if nothing goes wrong, these blades dull after about 10 uses, and because it's practically an art to create them, they're expensive. The lesson is that every material has its advantages and disadvantages. Ability in one area or arena doesn't mean that it's suitable for use in another. To do a single cell-splitting cut, obsidian is exceptional. But that doesn't automatically translate into saying that we would want to make all our cutting tools like kitchen knives, saw blades, or axe heads out of it. Additionally, while obsidian scalpels are still being used, they're being phased out by artificial diamond scalpels, which are nearly as sharp but a bit more durable. I'll put links in the show notes. One of the neat innovations possible with the diamond blade scalpels is the delivery of laser energy through the diamond blade, provided by a fiber optic CO2 laser allowing for controlled coagulation. You can check the show notes for more on the diamond laser knife. While diamond laser knives are still mostly a novelty, the technology might explain the elaborate handles and when kryptonite really shines. Throughout the movie, kryptonite has a soft glow, but only in one or two situations is it almost blindingly brilliant. It's only when used as a scalpel to cut or sometimes as a spear. When the kryptonite fragment is in the box, it does not glow anywhere near as brightly as in the Amrud footage or when Lex takes Zod's fingerprints. The Indian Ocean kryptonite only ever glows softly. When Batman forges it into a spearhead or when he stabs it into the ground or when Lois throws it into the water, the kryptonite doesn't shine. However, on other occasions, when it's drawn out of the ground or used against against Superman or used against Doomsday, the spearhead glows with an intense green light. How do we reconcile the difference in luminance in these scenes with an in-story explanation? And I think the answer is that kryptonite doesn't cut Kryptonians well without energetic assistance. That answer helps explain the funky sci-fi looking spear shaft. It's part of the reason Batman builds a spear and not bullets. And it explains half a dozen other little things which we'll get into later. For now, let's just posit that 
theory that the cord coming from the kryptonite scalpel is some sort of power, perhaps a laser or some other ionizing energy, which partially accounts for why the kryptonite blade is glowing more brightly than when it sits in the containment square alone. The cable could be other things, of course. It could be a camera, a light source, power for a motor or compressed air, maybe. But a fiber optic laser seems to be the better answer that explains more. The theory of a kryptonite laser scalpel is supported by four details the second time we see Lex using it. Number one, that unique glow again. The fragment is practically lit up like a lightsaber, unlike its natural state. Number two, the handle has a trigger for Lex's index finger. Normal and passive scalpels don't have triggers. Number three, the subtle wisps of smoke where the blade meets Zod's fingertips suggests something beyond just slicing. And number four, take a second to just think about the logistics of the situation. While some may try to explain the smoke as simply a reaction to the kryptonite's innate radiation, if that were the case, consider just how much radiation must be given off by the flat of the scalpel blade versus just its edge. If the radiation from the fragment was doing the damage, well, how well do you think a paper thin sample is going to hold up to that hot plate. This is Lex's one and only opportunity to secure these fingerprints for himself. He had to be confident that the scalpel wouldn't burn up or away or degrade his master key into the mothership for his master plan. The laser knife theory fits that expectation perfectly. Lex knows that he can cut where he wants to cut without the kryptonite ruining the fine details of the thin sample he seeks to recover. How did he know that his scalpel wasn't going to burn up or away the fingerprints? Well, that leads us back to our fifth and final line from the expository presentation. We concluded that the mineral could be weaponized if a large enough sample was found. Note the conditional if. This is a critical piece of exposition. Lex's scientist is saying that their existing sample isn't enough to weaponize. We need to appreciate that in plain English, that this is not enough kryptonite to hurt Superman. It's such an important point that Batman raises it again in a separate conversation, saying, the first sample big enough to mean something. So, all prior samples mean nothing as a weapon against Superman. So it's reasonable to set aside expectations born from the comics or cartoons. In the DCAU, a tiny sliver of kryptonite is enough to make Superman stagger. Ugh. It doesn't take much, does it? The Joker has 20 pounds more where this came from. Thought you might like to know. In the comics, Batman could rely on just a single ring setting to let his punches be felt. But is that really enough material to pour out enough radiation to affect Superman? Across media, we know that the amount varies and its effects are variable, so a fair and reasonable audience allows this story to set our expectations for this reality. Here, the film is all but declaring that it takes more than this to hurt Superman. So this fragment isn't going to do the trick as a bullet. It's not that Lex lacks the imagination to think of turning his sample into a bullet. That's exactly the example he uses as a model of deterrence. A silver bullet, which in folklore was a way to put down magical monsters like werewolves. It's not like Lex doesn't know what it takes to make an exotic bullet, as we know from the experimental ammunition tracked by Lois Lane. If Lex could forge a kryptonite bullet and thought that it was a reasonable weapon, he wouldn't be here asking for an import license. He would already have his silver bullet deterrent as a literal kryptonite one. So why wouldn't a kryptonite bullet work? 
Well, bullets aren't magic. There's a science behind them, which creates a ton of reasons, but let's just focus on three in this episode. One, insufficient material. Two, material properties like density and brittleness. And three, too short an impulse. Okay, so unpacking these, let's start with insufficient material. We've already been told this isn't enough kryptonite to weaponize, but why not? Creatively, we could just magically make kryptonite more radioactive so that it takes less to affect Superman. But if we want to ground our creativity with real scientific constraints, then that would probably make kryptonite disproportionately harmful to humans as well. We would probably shorten the half-life of kryptonite too much. At the beginning of this episode, we mentioned that kryptonite appeared to be relatively stable, and those in the know seemed relatively comfortable exposing themselves to it. So the radioactive dosage has to be within relatively human-safe limits. 5 sieverts and higher, radiation will start damaging your skin so it doesn't heal properly. Your hair will fall out, scars develop under your skin, swelling, and forming keloids. Now between 3 sieverts and 10 sieverts gives you a 50% chance of dying in 30 days. And an instant dose of 10 sieverts, that will be fatal even with medical care. When materials give off radiation, they transmute, which means a given sample of kryptonite can only give off so much radiation at a certain rate before it isn't kryptonite anymore. We measure that with something called a half-life, meaning the amount of time it takes for half of the material to have transmuted due to giving off radiation. For a stable, not especially radioactive materials, this can be thousands of years. For dangerously radioactive materials, this can be years. Cesium-137, the isotope typically linked to radioactive fallout, has a half-life of 30 years. To give Superman nearly instantly crippling acute radioactive syndrome from such a small sample is making a material that would probably burn up and away in Batman's utility belt. One of the ways that the kryptonite scalpel may be working is energizing the fragment so that the edges become a more radioactive isotope. In those cases, the wisps of green smoke we see would be the rapidly decaying kryptonite, Lex literally having to use up his kryptonite to get it to cut. Regardless, Scientifically, it makes sense that a larger sample is needed to provide crippling radiation. From a creative perspective, requiring larger amounts gives you a more flexible and robust Man of Steel for storytelling purposes. Traditionally, Superman is completely invincible, forcing writers to write in kryptonite. Yet he'd be so weak to kryptonite, they'd be forced to write around the weakness. A single kryptonite bullet and Superman's gone forever. So you have the doubly contrived entrance of kryptonite into the story, and then the contrivance of it being used ineffectively and inefficiently so that Superman can survive it. However, if kryptonite is less effective on Superman, then you can be more generous in allowing it into the story, and less worried about contrived circumstances saving Superman with kryptonite in it. Batman can't just keep a ring in his utility belt and expect to keep Superman at bay. He needs a more substantial sample for it to work, which means he needs to be explicitly prepared for it, and it makes it harder to bring to battle without being aware of it. We avoid the unlikely magic of trace amounts of kryptonite chewing gum, managing to instantly drop Superman like a rock. Consider that situation from 2011's Batman issue 32 in the light of the real-life story of the Radium Girls. The so-called Radium Girls, a group of several thousand young female factory workers in the early 20th century who for years worked with one of the world's most radioactive substances and suffered 
the consequences. Hammer found a variety of uses for this new luminous material, which he called undark. But the most popular was for the dials on watches and clocks so they could be seen in the dark. By the early 1920s, undark was being used by the U.S. Radium Corporation, where more than 4,000 workers, mostly young women, used it to paint tiny glowing numbers on watch faces. Even though the company's own chemists made sure to handle radium behind lead shields, the radium painters weren't given much in the way of protection. In fact, workers were encouraged to use their lips and tongues to shape the tips of their brushes. Soon, the effects of the radium showed up in the health of the workers. Ingesting large amounts of it over time exposes the whole body to its damaging effects. And what makes radium particularly dangerous when it's ingested is that it has chemical properties similar to calcium, so it's easily absorbed into bones, teeth, and other tissues. As a result, the women soon developed tumors, bone marrow damage, and leukemia. Others started losing teeth, suffering from deteriorating jawbones, mouth cancers, sores, and anemia. By the late 1920s, the health concerns about radium were starting to become public. And in 1927, five of the painters sued their employer for damages and medical expenses and won, but by then, dozens of past and present radium painters had died. That story was for radioactivity which was relatively safe in trace amounts, not something which can cause a full-grown humanoid to collapse into a heap. Okay, so we know that several grams of kryptonite placed near a fraction of a millimeter of kryptonian skin for several seconds doesn't visibly degrade it. So that means that the typical small arms payload doesn't emit enough radiation to degrade even paper-thin dead Kryptonian skin after several seconds of exposure. Putting aside problems of piercing the skin to begin with, that means not a lot of immediate reliable radiological damage. Now, obviously, a bullet is just a platform, not necessarily a set specification. Putting aside material issues for now, if small arms aren't enough, why not just make larger or more exotic bullets? Well, isn't that exactly what Batman does in essence? By the end of our analysis, we'll see how his approach with the gas grenades and the spear overcomes issues of payload, penetration, material issues, and impulse. So let's move on to our second point, addressing material issues. I'm not going to dive too deeply into this because we have dozens of Mythbusters episodes over a decade addressing the viability of different bullet compositions. The material properties of kryptonite as we've covered already makes it a pretty poor substance for creating a viable bullet. As we've said, compared to water's density of 1, lead has a density of 11. And as a mineral and based on our observations, kryptonite is somewhere between 2 or 3 and too lightweight for an efficient transfer of energy and maintenance of momentum. Moreover, as an obvious crystal, it's unlikely to have the toughness or plasticity of an alloy or metal. The energies of a small arms explosion would vaporize a kryptonite round before it got anywhere. Now, if the only thing we cared about was delivering kryptonite to the target, we might solve this by jacketing the kryptonite in an accommodating material or mixing it in with an alloy. But from the fingerprint example, we can already see the problem. If a few millimeters of open air are enough to shield paper-thin skin from the effects of raw kryptonite, how much more will a jacket of solid metal shield Superman from the radioactive effects? Similarly, if you mix it into an alloy, only the kryptonite on the exterior surface matters and by virtue of being mixed into an alloy, it's a lower concentration than the solid fragment scalpel. 
For a typical small arms round, even completely mushroomed, the surface area is going to be really tiny. It's going to be much less than the scalpel blade, which is already about as wide and long as the tip of an index finger. And it's going up against much more Kryptonian cellular material than just a paper-thin slice of skin. From Man of Steel, we've already seen that conventional and ideal bullet materials don't stick to Superman. It's not like he had to brush off deformed rounds that had stuck to his skin. So the radiological exposure is limited. And all of this assumes the ability to work with kryptonite. Not every material can be worked with the same way. The reason most things in the modern world are made of plastic or metal is because those materials can be shaped and molded in almost unlimited ways. Minerals and crystals can be much harder to work with. We see kryptonite only in four forms. Lex's fragment, the large sample, the spearhead, and as dust. We're only shown one way to work with kryptonite, and that's Batman's Atom Smasher-like laser lathe. The inability to work with kryptonite reinforces some of the points about the kryptonite scalpel. If it was the sharpness of the material that mattered, and the material was easy to work with, they would have sharpened it. However, as they didn't, it supports the idea that the kryptonite being energized is what is allowing the cutting and the penetration. Similarly, with the kryptonite spear, if Batman could work with it another way to get the results that he wanted, he probably would. Remember, he has all of Lex's research. He has essentially unlimited funds, and at this point in time, he's working on his own timetable. If an angle grinder or a polishing wheel would have done the trick better, I don't think he'd rely on an exotic or exclusive or expensive technology. That doesn't mean that kryptonite is invincible to more traditional methods of shaping gemstones. Much more likely, it's the reverse, that such techniques would likely compromise, shatter, or crumple your sample than whatever your laser might do. Another storytelling benefit of showing the laser as the forging method is to suggest that kryptonite can, at least briefly, survive intense heat, which takes away Superman simply melting kryptonite with his heat vision as his opening salvo. Maybe. It's possible that, as of Batman v Superman, heat vision also has kinetic impact. In Man of Steel, Superman's heat vision just melts away Zod's steel girder beam. It doesn't blow it away or parry it. Yet in Batman v Superman, getting hit by Doomsday's heat vision sends people flying. Okay, back on track, it's not clear that the capability exists to shape reliable bullets from kryptonite. Again, the forging of the kryptonite spear is a big clue here. Consider or imagine your ideal spear for a moment. I can all but guarantee that your imagined implement has a head devoid of random imperfections. In other words, if Batman could forge a perfectly smooth, shiny, and sharp spearhead he would but instead the spearhead is still very textured rough and irregular in the show notes there's a link to a close-up of the spearhead from the warner brothers studio tour allowing you to see just how primitive gnarled and unrefined the shape this shows us the quote-unquote resolution this material and his methods are capable of producing it isn't any more refined because it can't be any more refined and that's extremely bad news for any kind of modern, reliable firearm projectile where we're talking about tolerances where a fraction of a millimeter matters. If kryptonite was as tough as steel and as easy to work with, Batman wouldn't have created a spearhead with such a thick blade geometry. Without getting into the science of cutting too much, it's obvious a wider wedge has a harder time of successfully penetrating. And we also know that penetration matters, not just from thousands of years of hunting and warfare and basic common sense, but because Batman, with all of Lex's research,
research immediately raises the issue to Alfred. If I can penetrate the skin, the spear will kill it. Batman knows that penetration is paramount, so he would have designed a weapon to provide the most possible penetration with the largest payload of kryptonite, which could reliably hold up in combat. Sure, something like a javelin might more reliably pierce, but it's apparent that the kryptonite isn't going to cooperate with that geometry. Basically, the spear shows us why alternatives aren't possible. The material and the method wouldn't let him go thinner, more refined, or less material. He isn't going to be forging batarangs or bullets or blades out of this because it isn't the right material for it. That said, forget all that for a moment and say you managed to deliver a pure kryptonite round regardless. Well, now you run into the third and final point or issue, too short an impulse. What is an impulse? It's the change in momentum as the integral of force over time in which it acts. In any collision, there's a preservation of momentum. However, the felt force can be proportionately reduced by extending the period over which the force acts. A common example is an airbag. Even the split second of deploy, deceleration, and delay created by the airbag allows the force of the flying passenger to act over a longer period and thus make it less catastrophic. The collision starts on impact with the airbag, so there is a deeper and safer penetration by the passenger. Without the airbag, the collision starts with the dashboard, and there is a brief and dangerous interaction where the car wins and the passenger loses. The importance and effectiveness of extending the impulse is often seen in the comparison between the penetration of arrows versus bullets. Ballistic armor, boxes of sand, etc., they are all routinely defeated by arrows while deflecting bullets. The penetrating power of this weapon is amazing. For instance, take standard infantry small arms to the range. For a target, set up a cardboard carton and fill it with earth. Partitions inside will show the depth of penetration by each weapon. The stage is now set for a rather surprising demonstration. First, the 45 caliber automatic. Now the 30 caliber carbine. Next, the M1 rifle. All three weapons pierced the first partition, as you'd expect. Only the M1 penetrated the second, the carbine slug merely denting it. None of these standard infantry firearms penetrated the full depth of the earth-filled target. Now, watch closely. The point, as unit members bring out with a pardonable pun, is clear. I'm not going to drown you in ballistics information. You can check the show notes to see the scientists who have done the math and done the work. And of course, this is not all just about mass and muzzle velocity. A baseball can achieve more momentum and kinetic energy, but it still bounces off the same target. While a bullet has 10 times more kinetic energy and 40% more momentum than the arrow, at 7 times the velocity, it's met by nearly 50 times the resistance, as encountered by the arrow. 
Now, consider for a second what kind of resistance the kryptonite bullets might be facing. We're talking about cells which can withstand the tremendous force of a point-blank nuclear explosion. <laughs> Even exposed to radiation and weakened, these cells don't get bruised when beaten by metal-clad fists or busted when sent through columns of stone. It's implicit that with Superman's second thrust against Doomsday, that it takes considerable strength to pierce Kryptonian cells even directly exposed to kryptonite. This is not a soft and forgiving target. Yes, we saw decaying Kryptonian cells, but the example we see on screen happens before our eyes in real time. And that means that it's a process slow enough that we can see. Even a life-saving airbag is faster than the blink of an eye, and a bullet collision is a thousand times faster. Think back to what it is about kryptonite that is weakening Kryptonian cells. It's not a chemical reaction. It's not the physical impact or the kinetic payload. It isn't the sharpness or the strength of its own molecular bonds. No, it's the radiation. Exposure to the radiation from kryptonite is what gradually weakens and degrades kryptonian cells. So what happens on a bullet impact? At the point of contact, a kinetic payload is colliding with Superman's cells. Even if the radiation coming off the bullet is light speed, its effects aren't. We've seen that repeatedly. We saw it under the microscope as taking some moments just to degrade some cells. We saw that even a paper-thin skin held up to a kryptonite blade doesn't degrade instantly. So even if the skin immediately interacting with the kryptonite bullet is degraded, all the cells behind that layer are still invulnerable and only in the process of being degraded, if at all. The molecular interactions between Superman's cells is far faster than the radiological effects of such a minuscule cross-section of a few millimeters of kryptonite, and the bullet bounces away, off, or bursts upon impact, never actually breaking Superman's skin. It's a little like a firewalker. Heat is a form of radiation, long-wave thermal radiation along the infrared spectrum. While glowing hot coals are anywhere between 1,000 and 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, the low conductivity of the coals and the brief period of contact means that there isn't enough time for the coals to harm you. Under the right conditions, if you keep moving, you could firewalk all day. The current record is a little over 180 meters. In terms of resistance, it's a little like shooting into water. At those high speeds, the water molecules don't have enough time to move out of the way, and so the bullet encounters incredible resistance and breaks up. Well, Adam, this is totally amazing. Even with the 50 caliber, an armor-piercing round, it lost all its energy within the first couple of feet. It ripped the copper jacket off of it and didn't penetrate the target. Well, just like all our other high-powered rifles. Yeah. And yet, with the slower muzzle velocity weapons, like a handgun, the black powder rifle, and the shotgun, we found deeper penetration, sometimes as much as eight feet. So applying a little sensible science and a grounded context, it makes sense not to waste a precious resource like kryptonite in the form of bullets, which would all end up bouncing off Superman before they could do anything. Instead, the slow blade penetrates the shield. Putting it all together, we can see the problems with many of the proposed alternatives. A bullet is filled with problems. First, forging one of the right size and to the right tolerances. Second, the bullet surviving the gunshot. Third, surviving the impact. 
Fourth, achieving penetration without being energized. And fifth, and finally, being a sufficient payload. When we've already been told that Lex's fragment isn't enough to weaponize. And Bruce says Lex's fragment doesn't matter. A sword has many of the same problems. It's unclear that a sufficiently sharp blade geometry can even be created. But if you could, you've got a brittle mineral blade that likely shatters on impact. We also don't know if the hilt of a sword contains enough volume to house the energizing technology. And finally, a sword reduces the amount of radioactive material delivering radiation to the target with a thinner profile than a more bulbous spearhead. Clubs, brass knuckle, and other impact weapons all fail to provide piercing damage, and Superman seems to remain relatively durable to impact damage even after being weakened by kryptonite. He's able to take Batman's metal-clad punches and crash through stone while still alive. Penetration is required not just to compromise the function of Superman's organs, but to keep the radioactivity within him. Impact weapons bounce off and away and don't do that. So enough about all the problems. Let's see how Batman tries to solve these issues, starting with the spear. The spear can't be faulted for being too little material. Using software similar to what gem cutters use to analyze uncut stones, Batman basically tries to recover the biggest possible chunk of kryptonite from the Indian Ocean sample as he possibly could. His weapon has the most material to deliver the most possible radiation from that available rock, short of turning it into the head of a hammer. His spear also complies with the material properties of the mineral. His spear has a thick cross-section to give it strength, and it is as sharp as the material will allow, and stronger and more sturdy than a far thinner sword or knife or javelin point. It's large and has a rough shape with many imperfections because the material won't survive being worked in more detail. So he doesn't fiddle with the niceties of polishing or precise sharp edges or even functional advantages like a socket or a tang because the mineral won't allow it. As a melee weapon, Batman can be sure that the impulses will be closer to the range of a scalpel cut, which he knows kryptonite can do, than those immediate impulses of a bullet, which would likely bounce off and away. From Robin's weapon, we can surmise that Batman is familiar with and capable in fighting with polearm-like weapons, so the weapon system is familiar. And finally, the shaft of the spear likely includes necessary technology to make the spearhead effective. As we saw with the scalpel, the blade was lit up and connected by a cable to some larger mechanism in order to slice through Zod's fingertips. If the kryptonite could do that alone, there would be no light show, no fancy handle, and Lex would likely have to cut much deeper to avoid frying the paper-thin fingertip skin. However energy is being put into the blade, be it laser, ionizing energy, or whatever, it's apparently necessary to make kryptonite capable of cutting kryptonian cells quickly. We see this idea reinforced by the shaft of the kryptonian spear. It's reasonable to consider that form follows function. In other words, the spear looks the way it looks because there is a functional reason for it. If you look at Robin's polearm weapon, it has a simple shaft, and that shows that Batman knows how to make a straightforward and functional polearm weapon. It also shows that his protege prefers simple and uncomplicated shafts. So it's reasonable to conclude that if Batman could just mount the kryptonite spearhead on a normal simple shaft, he would have and would have preferred to do so, just like Robin was taught to. 
Instead, the shaft of the kryptonite spear is anything but. Instead, it's covered with flanges, flares, fins, rivets, ridges, rings, and reliefs. It's decidedly complicated, technological looking, and every portion of it summons to mind another iconically overcomplicated weapon component from our collective consciousness, the lightsaber hilt. A lightsaber hilt is supposedly just a hilt, so it shouldn't have any of the anti-ergonomic complications seen on some of the most memorable lightsabers. Nonetheless, the form is implicitly informed by the function. They look that way to some degree because they have to, and there is a design language to lightsabers which allows us to almost immediately recognize any segment of tube with similar features as what it is. The kryptonite spear borrows heavily from that design language to let us know that, like a lightsaber, this handle does something. It's not just a passive part of the weapon, but something intrinsic to its efficacy. The design is obviously the intention, seeing that on July 23, 2014, Zack Snyder tweeted out an image of Henry Cavill in his costume-hiding cloak, clutching the shaft of the spear with a red lightsaber blade coming from it. Hashtag Super Jedi. I knew reading the script that this lightsaber was Excalibur, so I knew it had to be special. Inside my memory banks, I contain a record of every lightsaber ever made and the Jedi who fashioned them. Which will you choose? A simple grip? The curved approach? One inlaid with the bone of the Cartusian whale, Bastilian ore, or black onk? Well? From battles of Rashfond to the peacekeeping of Parleyok to our very own Clone Wars, the lightsaber is a Jedi's only true ally. But how do they work? Hmm? Yes, you have brought me crystals, but they're all useless unless you give them life. <laughs> And actually, I just want to take a second to thank most of the filmmakers in production for guarding this secret so carefully. You'll note that the Kryptonite Spear isn't found in most of the concept art, in any of the licensed toys, or even in the art book or tech manual. At one point, Jim Lee redrew an alternate cover to keep the secret of the spear. In fact, in the tech manual, you can see the Kryptonite Spear's shaft with various bladed heads as if it were Robin's weapon. But we know from what actually makes it into the film that Robin's pole weapon is far more simple. I'm not sure if that was a misdirect just for the tech manual, or if the concept artists were told to design a weapon for Robin, knowing full well that their designs would ultimately be used for a spear, but that kind of misinformation isn't outside the norm. One of my favorite stories is how an assistant wanted to do something special by having the script to Return of the Jedi, codenamed Blue Harvest, leather bound, only to find out that he had bound a fake decoy script. I'll put a link in the show notes. In another case, the extras attending Superman's funeral in BVS were told to imagine that the president had died. So the direction provides the desired effect without revealing the underlying plot point. You could imagine something similar in the production where the artists were told to make something like a lightsaber for Robin initially. Regardless of what happened behind the scenes, I'm sure that for many of the audience, it was one of the several surprises carefully kept by the filmmakers. There are loads of little details I'm sure we'll be able to see with the home release. There was a surprising amount of text up on screen, some of which may be enlightening and some of which I'm sure is simply texture. Similar to how movie phone numbers start with 555, I suspect things like coordinates are probably going to be flipped to keep from actually pointing to anywhere, and I know that there is some text on 
on the kryptonite specs, which for all I know, completely upend my analysis, but I was never able to catch it since it's such a split second. And so I'll stand by what I've said so far. I just love gadgets, gears, props, and costumes. So seeing what's coming out of Suicide Squad has me incredibly excited. It's just so awesome how much smaller examples of art and artistry exist in this larger thing called film. And it's just so fun to appreciate everything that they put into it. I'm not saying that this is the story that they put into each and every one of these artifacts that we see on film, but that the rich production design supports telling these kinds of stories. And many times there is a whole unseen and unspoken history behind the productions of these props. We saw that many times in Man of Steel, an entire coherent Kryptonian language underneath the elegant engravings, or Zack dorking out as he shares the mythology behind the Kryptonian Codex skull. I'm guessing that each and every item in the Suicide Squad has a similar story to tell from Harley's baseball bats to Diablo's tats. Now, do you have a favorite prop you suggest that everybody sees in this exhibit? Especially when you're here and you're getting so up close, Joker has an old traditional shaving blade that he has and etched into the blade is a smile and you wouldn't be able to see that unless you're just inches from it. He carved a smile into the blade. Okay, I'm rambling. We only have a few months to Suicide Squad and I can't wait. If I have time to do a show, it will probably be speculation on how the world leads into or out of Suicide Squad. Maybe. I kind of just want to talk about boomerangs for an entire episode, but I am completely off track. Where was I? Where were we? Um... Right, the spear, right? Okay, so the spear has this lightsaber-like handle to me, which strongly implies that there's much more to the spear than meets the eye. In fact, we know this. When Batman draws the spear out of the ground and approaches the downed Superman, it makes those satisfying click and kachink sounds as it expands in stages. That means that there are user-operable mechanisms, a hidden button or switch to make the collapsible spear expand to full length. If there's a button to control the variable length, is it unreasonable to explain the variable brightness through something similar? We've seen the spearhead silent and inert. Other times it sings and shines with blinding brilliance. So if there was a button to turn that on and off, that explains the variance. And if there was a button for the rubble to hit, it would explain Lois tossing the spear away while it was off, only for it to be on when they tried to recover it. And if that light is on every time they intend to cut a Kryptonian, that supports the notion that kryptonite can't effectively cut or penetrate kryptonian skin without assistance. In fact, I might go so far to say that Batman scratching Superman's cheek wasn't just sadism, but to check if indeed Superman could be cut. Considering the beating Superman just survived, Batman's blade might have been blunted without first confirming it could cut. Not only is this scientifically feasible, it creatively keeps kryptonite from being an easy or always answer to Superman in the future of the cinematic universe. But before we make those predictions, though, let's look at Batman's second solution, the kryptonite gas grenades. The 40 millimeter low velocity grenades are fired from the real world grenade launcher module FNMK-13. It's interesting how it ticks most of the boxes. Payload amount? Well, a 40 millimeter grenade is going to carry way more kryptonite than any small arms round. Material properties? They don't matter since the kryptonite is pulverized and delivered via a low velocity grenade as a gas. Impulse? Again, doesn't matter because instead of trying to penetrate through the skin to reach the vital organs and let the kryptonite persist as a gas, 
the kryptonite gets drawn into the vital organs by Superman's own respiratory system. Now, some contrivance is required to make this work, but it does, and it delivers on most everything you'd want or expect from a kryptonite projectile weapon made on short order to reliably get kryptonite inside of Superman. Note that even with all of Lex's research, no one had ever tested kryptonite on a living Kryptonian yet. There were still a lot of variables in play, and Batman only has three shots to hopefully make this work. So it's reasonable to go for a simple, reliable, lightweight platform rather than make his own custom grenade launcher from scratch or take an off-the-shelf repeating grenade launcher with significantly more bulk or possible points of failure. Again, it's not necessarily a foolproof plan, but it's the best of a bad, self-imposed situation. That's another show. Reinforcing the priority of penetration. Getting gas into Superman's vital organs is key because it allows for more forms of radiation to do damage. Until now, I've been using radiation as an umbrella term for any wave or particle that comes off of kryptonite. Well, we won't get into that, I promise. But I do want to point out that alpha particle radiation is highly ionizing and therefore especially damaging. But it has low penetration depth. It's readily stopped by a few centimeters of air or almost entirely by skin. So if you want to distinguish between the effects of kryptonite within versus without, alpha radiation is one way to do it. Alpha particles are the first. They don't penetrate deeply into our skin if they do at all, because clothes can stop the particles. But they can be inhaled or ingested, usually as a radon gas. And they can also lead to lung cancer. Okay, I'm not going to derail this with every type of ionizing radiation, but remind me to raise gamma rays when we one day get to doomsday and the new But for now, I'll put links in the show notes for more on radiation. Back to the grenade. In terms of efficacy, only the first shot gives us a relatively clean experiment to work with. The second shot comes after who knows how much gas or lingering effects from the first shot are still in Superman's system. Plus, it's stacked on top of a fight and exposure to the kryptonite spear, so it's less clear what the pathology of the second shot is compared to the first. For the first shot, Superman breathes in some smaller portion of the kryptonite gas, clearly not 100% of the cloud, and while he's breathing it in, he suffers respiratory distress, involuntarily coughing, gagging, and breathing in even more kryptonite. He falls to his knees and spasms, so his muscular system is compromised and he's in pain. Nevertheless, he's able to hear and understand Batman. And even before the cloud is completely dissipated, he's back on his feet, ready to fight, so he believes he has control of his faculties. He's surprised by Batman's block, so at least up to that moment, he doesn't feel like or know that he's weakened or debilitated. As we go through the fight, it's apparent that Superman still has some degree of his powers. I have to wait for the home release to know everything he takes, but getting hit repeatedly in the face with a metal armored fist without bruises indicates continued durability. Batman stomps on Superman with the entire weight of his armor falling from one and a half stories and then soccer kicks Superman across the floor. Yet that Superman still gets up, throws Batman through a wall and across a room. As Batman punches lose effectiveness, the sound of the impact shifts from a dull thud to a metallic ring, which is a neat little experiment showing Superman's invulnerability does change the amount of give one experiences when striking him, at which point it seems like his flight and some of his strength is restored. So to sum up that first shot, we have about 30 seconds 
of total distress, followed by 90 seconds of compromised powers, which are largely restored afterwards. I'm not a medical doctor by any means, so I can only apply less medically sound cinematic analogy to the pathology as I understand it. But to me, we can compare it with kryptonite atmosphere, which biochemically acts on his organs to deactivate his powers. With Kryptonian atmosphere, Superman's skin can be pierced by a simple hypodermic needle, and he has no strength. By contrast, kryptonite seems to attack the cells or the organs with radiation, which in turn compromises the powers, but the powers can and do fight back. Superman survives multi-story falls, being smashed through stone, and still has many of his key powers even wielding the kryptonite spear in the end. Wielding the spear also reinforces the point that piercing the skin matters, and the Kryptonians still have organs which perform biological functions, which can be reached, affected, and stopped. So when Superman breathes in the kryptonite gas, his lungs get hit with a radiological payload and are damaged. Accordingly, we see similar symptoms to when Superman first breathed in Kryptonian atmosphere, weakness, and respiratory distress. However, the biochemical reactions there just turned off his powers. Here, Superman is taking literal damage to his lungs, so he has the pain and the spasms. But since his powers are still technically in effect, his lungs are also healing and adapting in response. The kryptonite enters his bloodstream and starts to spread throughout his system. And here I'm going to have to hand wave the specific organs under attack because I don't think there is a single specific Kryptonian power organ. And at this level, we just have to accept the magic of radiation that comic book Kryptonians are known for. But basically, the kryptonite compromises his organs and his powers are compromised. However... How do we explain the temporary effect and the restoration of his powers? Well, one way is to say that the half-life of kryptonite is simply that short. But we've already had that discussion, and I think the other way to go is to say that the biological half-life is that short. A biological half-life is the amount of time it takes for a substance to lose half of its effect on the subject. In general, for radiological materials, that doesn't happen until the material is eliminated from the body. However, if we return to our hand wave and the special and magical relationship that Kryptonians have with radiation, it's not unreasonable to expect that Kryptonians have some sort of way to break down, metabolize, store, isolate, or eliminate radiation or radioactive materials. In the way that our liver breaks down alcohol or our kidneys filter toxins, imagine that Kryptonians, with a special sensitivity to radiation, have bodily systems for handling bad radiation. Perhaps something like how we can protect our thyroid glands from radiation by ingesting sodium iodide, Kryptonians might have an inbuilt system like that to help explain Superman's rapid recovery from breathing in radioactive elements. Part of the point of going into this entire mechanism, though, is to show that it wouldn't be a total recovery and that this second grenade would have a cumulative effect. I didn't have a chance to time the second shot, but I think between being indoors, being beat up, and lying on his back, Superman breathed in a heavier dose the second time around. He still seems to have some of his durability because he survives a multi-story fall and being flung through several stone pillars, but before we see any evidence of recovery, he's exposed to the radiation of the glowing kryptonite spear, which we know on its own is capable of weakening Superman from his attempt to retrieve it from the water later. To add additional complexity to the equation, the cut on Superman's cheek doesn't heal even as his powers and strength return to face Doomsday. 
Okay, so I'm not going to go down that analysis now. You can work it out, but it isn't necessary to enjoy this movie or even necessarily future ones, but you can achieve a reasonably consistent pathology for Kryptonian kryptonite interactions if you want. The point of pointing all this out is to illustrate the underlying complexity and ambiguity that gives creative freedom to those who want to carry on the story as a baseline. Kryptonite is still rare. You still need a good amount of it to weaponize. Superman can still fight against it and recover from it. You don't simply get to shoot Superman with a kryptonite bullet and expect it to work. And at least for now, you need some sort of energizing element to make it more effective. That's a very flexible framework for telling Superman stories with or without kryptonite. If you don't want it in your story, it's because it's rare and expensive. If you do want it in your story, it isn't easy to deploy or use. But if you do use it, Superman still has a fighting chance, so there's still tension. The interactions in BVS have enough complexity and ambiguity that you can create special cases or explain alternative interactions. And despite all the limitations I've raised for this movie, if ultimately you want to change the situation, well, the cinematic universe has two mechanisms that allow for that relatively easily. First, time, and second, technology. Yeah, these are the limitations of kryptonite now, but with time, those can change, evolve, or be overcome. And in terms of technology, the more and more science fiction elements are introduced into the universe, the more you don't necessarily have to be bound by prior rules or restrictions. By starting off with a more grounded, realistic, and scientific approach to kryptonite, they have a sensible baseline to inform future stories. But at the same time, they can always modify that to support whatever story they want. And if they want to invent or explain a kryptonite bullet or ring in the future, they can. If they had started with kryptonite flex completely overwhelming Superman and kryptonite bullets as a viable thing, well, you've written yourself into a corner pretty quickly. However, by starting off with kryptonite as effective only under specific circumstances, they have room to write more situations where it's effective rather than having to invent ways to write around its lethality. We need not be impatient with this universe and expect everything that we've already seen all at once. If you look in the comics and some cartoons and TV shows, yes, there are kryptonite bullets, blades, and rings. Yet in nearly all of those examples, not only are they less concerned with science, but the alternative delivery device comes after years of kryptonite lore has been established. In the modern examples of Superman the Trust, Public Enemies, and Justice League Doomed, each of these stories came after Superman has been Superman for over a decade, and Batman is his best costumed friend. In a show like Supergirl, while kryptonite bullets and blades are new to her and the viewers, it's in a universe where Superman has already been on the scene and established the superhero and kryptonite tropes. In that show, it's an excellent mechanism for getting right into superheroics as we know it, because anything that wouldn't make sense for the ground up, they can explain as pioneered by Superman off-screen, essentially relying on our collective consciousness to explain away the superhero stuff we all take for granted. That approach doesn't work as well for people who don't know or accept these superhero tropes, who don't take these things for granted, and it's refreshing to have at least one other approach that tries not to assume them. Not every time. Time, not all the time, but at least it makes an effort, which is a different approach that I really like because I can read my nearly 80 years of Superman comics again and again and enjoy them, but I rarely get that refreshing approach to the same photorealistic degree as I get from this current cinematic universe. Most Superman comics would not sustain discussions about the material properties of minerals, blade geometry physics, ionizing radiation, or the pathology of biological half 
lives for radioactive substances, but that we can at least entertain that discussion with these films so far because of how seriously they take the world building, not just on creative, thematic, or emotional levels, but where we can also try to dive deep into science for insight into the inner workings. It wasn't always that way. I remember when they would explain Flash's intangibility and ability to pass through walls as analogous to a piece of straw being able to punch through a board of wood if thrown at incredible tornado speeds. Not exactly hard science there. I love that society is more scientifically sophisticated, and so the stories are too. It doesn't need to be the approach for every film or character, but it's a refreshing one for a character already so well-known and well-trod, and it allows for new angles on expected traditions. For example, for me, the single most profound thing that the introduction of Kryptonite allows for in decades of Superman and Batman continuity is whenever Superman entrusts it to Batman as an explicit contingency against himself. We've mentioned that in past episodes, right? However, rather than using the history of that as a crutch, let's really look at the elements of why that's so resonant. When Superman gives Batman kryptonite, the context changes slightly in every instance, but the bottom line is it's an expression of trust. Whether it's an affirmation of their friendship in an already ongoing relationship, or if it's a first step and a show of good faith for first-time comrades, Superman is acknowledging that despite their differences, he understands his intentions and their goals are ultimately the same, and so he trusts Batman with his weakness. Now, if we set aside tradition for a second and look at what happened in BVS, it's arguable that the exchange between Superman and Batman is even more powerful than the gift of a radioactive rock. At least in this story, kryptonite doesn't work as a gift. First off, it makes no logical sense because Batman already has it and he's the one introducing Superman to it. And besides, Superman isn't around at the end. Second, as we've already worked through this entire episode, Superman is still pretty strong in the face of kryptonite. It takes a crazy set of circumstances to actually affect him with it. And even then, Superman is still durable and able to fight. And in the end, he's still strong and able to fly. No, what really makes Superman completely vulnerable is his loved ones, Lois and Martha. More than kryptonite or doomsday or a nuclear weapon, all of which Superman faces fearlessly, it's losing Lois or Martha that makes Superman afraid. Yet with Batman's foot on his throat, spear overhead, and murder on his mind, what does Superman do? As a last desperate act, he asks Batman to save Martha. At the point where these two could not be further apart in ideals, one about to murder the other, Superman still sees in Batman the seed of good intentions, someone who would and could save someone else. For Superman, the only fate worse than death is for his loved ones to be hurt or harmed. If he imagined Batman as a being of pure malice, the last thing he would do is give him more ammunition to harm him from beyond the grave or to mock Martha's demise at the hands of another. But that isn't what Superman sees in Batman. He sees someone who knows not what they're about to do. Someone who doesn't understand. Someone who's about to make a mistake. But despite that, he still sees somebody with good intent and heroic potential. Even if it's the last thing he says, he hopes he can reach the hero inside and he trusts Batman with his ultimate vulnerability, with his true weakness, with something more precious to him than life itself. Yes, giving Batman kryptonite is a moving act of trust, but it isn't like Superman finds or considers kryptonite particularly precious or beloved or something to be protected. Except as a symbol, the kryptonite given over doesn't matter to Superman. 
The kryptonite ring or bullet is a token of trust, but at the end of the day, it's a trinket that isn't really going to stop Superman. Martha is the furthest thing from a trinket to Superman. Martha's safety is of incredible importance to Superman. Our mothers matter beyond measure. Yet here, he shows incredible trust and faith in Batman by putting Martha's rescue in Batman's hands after Batman asks. That interactive element is more compelling than the classic gift, which is often somewhat one-sided in the moment. Superman imposes this upon Batman, and it serves to characterize his goodness, his trust, his friendship, and his faith. But the angle on Batman's characterization is that he's cynical enough to accept the need for this gift, but his characterization comes later, when he either uses the kryptonite as it was intended, or he has occasion to abuse it. In BVS, the exchange of trust is more profound, because Batman Batman turned aside from his fatal mistake at the last second and wants to be trusted. He recognizes that Superman is needed elsewhere, and he asks Superman to trust him with Martha's rescue. The man who had just sliced open his cheek, meant to murder him, considered him a monster, called him a clown, waited for him to burn it all down, and beat him without mercy, is now asking to be the one responsible for saving Martha's life. And Superman doesn't just turn the other cheek, he goes the extra mile and trusts this man. Imagine how redemptive that is for the both of them. Batman had stopped trusting. The partnership with Robin was over. He lies to Alfred. He doesn't even trust himself. Why would he? His career of crime fighting was an ineffectual lie. He's branded himself a criminal and he betrays his own code with new rules. He's deceived himself to the point where he's dehumanized a hero into something to be killed to quell his own hurt and he knows it. Yet even under his boot, this man saw in him a hero, someone who saves, someone who could protect his mother. And Batman wants to be worthy of that. He asks Superman to trust him. He makes Superman a promise. And incredibly, Superman does trust him. He believes in the Batman. Imagine what that feels like. Batman, in principle, is a compromise, a concession. It's acceptance of a lesser evil. Going along with the Batman is saying that society is so broken, better order from the brutality of a vigilante than the alternative. That's not faith or hope or belief. But Superman's trust is something different. It is something relying on him, putting their trust and faith in him, hoping for something better, believing he can be a hero, and that's a source of inspiration. If even this alien he had meant to exterminate can see the hero in him, how much more should he try to be one? Having those expectations placed upon him reminds Batman of who he is at his core, the one who ran into the cloud of debris to help. And it brings back the nobility inherent in fighting evil for the sake of saving others, not to pacify his hurt over the dead, but to honor the lives of the living. For Superman, it's cathartic to see his tiny glimmer of faith in humanity realized as a reality. He set off hoping that he could convince the Bat to help, and was bitterly beaten for it. But he still holds out hope that there's a hero in Batman, someone who would want to save Martha. And it turns out he was right. There is still good in this world. Not only does Batman cast aside his enmity, but he asks to save Martha. If Superman was cynical and hopeless and unforgiving, there's no chance he puts Martha's safety in Batman's hands. But he knows firsthand what it's like to be manipulated by Lex, and he knows the same hunger for redemption. He's already forgiven Batman, but he intends to rescue Martha himself until Batman asks. And here's somebody willing and able to take some of Superman's burden 
from him. With stakes like these, he's never had that before. As the sole superpowered hero, he's carried the weight of the world and tried to protect what was personally precious to him at the same time. And here, an enemy turned ally is asking for the opportunity to be a hero to him, to protect what is precious to them both so that he can go where he needs to go and be who he needs to be. Batman has already proven himself incredibly capable, but more importantly, he's proved that he still has a hero's heart. Batman stopping, asking for redemption, and promising Martha's protection restores and rewards Superman's faith in humanity. Being able to give his hopes to another like that is far more powerful for this Superman than simply turning over a piece of radioactive rock that isn't really ever going to stop him any better than Wonder Woman Flash or the Martian Manhunter could. Cal. If you give them hope, that's what this symbol means. The symbol of the House of El means hope. Embodied within that hope is the fundamental belief in the potential of every person to be a force for good. That's what you can bring them. Here, Superman learns that giving them hope isn't just trying to live up to expectations. It's placing expectations upon and in others, literally giving them and bringing them his hope. I can give you a hope that I will be there to save the day and show you by example that that's what's going to happen so that you have an expectation, you have a hope, but all I've done is create a one-sided dependency. I've fed you a fish, but not taught you how to fish. How do parents give their children hope in a way that's meaningful, in a way that lasts, in a way that can be passed on and inspires more hope? It's by conveying their own wants, expectations, and dreams so that you have them too. Superman wants others to be forces for good, to be heroes, to be the ones he can believe will save Martha. And here, Batman takes on those expectations. He has the same wants and desires, and he has been given hope. Batman has been taught how to fish, and he's inspired, and in turn, he inspires Superman. He is not alone. There is still good in the world. (laughs) Uh, So much for objective scientific analysis. This isn't at all where I intended to end up. I still have so many notes on analyzing other weaknesses and durability feats using Doomsday, Wonder Woman, and the nuclear warhead. Yet as much as I want to get into that, I think I'm done for now. Sort of how time and technology allow them to open up how kryptonite works, rebirth and resurrection make it uncertain how much Superman's traits will stay the same. I still want to break them down because I'm always amazed how much internal consistency is ultimately revealed when you do, but the predictive power is mitigated some. Man, I'm aching at all these unused notes. I had this whole arc planned going from a caveman weapon to the atomic age, but I rambled on too long. I didn't even get to the Spear of Destiny, the 1981 Excalibur glow, the lightsaber's adherence to the hero's journey. We didn't get to Wonder Woman's sword and shield, Doomsday's regeneration, or Superman's regeneration. We didn't do the rockets, Fallout, Van Allen belts, the Argus effect, EMP, or Operation Starfish Prime. Seriously, there is so much interesting implication in these films if you don't just brush them off as just blockbuster entertainment and you chew your food. I think the way we're going to work this is to download all of that into a doomsday episode for some other time. But seriously, I have got to wrap this up. It's funny how just in two films, the legend and the lore behind Kryptonite is deeper than in most tellings of the tale of Excalibur. The spearhead comes from a material that came from a technology that embodied the hopes and the dreams of a 
world wanting more, which gets weaponized after its fall by Zod, and then the product of this piece of home gets weaponized by Lex, then weaponized by Batman, recovered by Lois, and then used against Doomsday, and that's a storied spear which may still be in play even after this film is over. <laughs> oh man, this is what happens when I don't follow my notes, but I know. I have rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son. (laughs) Okay, so despite being ready to go, some of us are not ready to go. And so I'm going to run out the clock by answering odds and ends to append to the end of this episode. I don't want to rush through the rest of my notes, so I'm just going to fast attack some of these other random ones. Uh, The first one is outer space. How high in the sky did Superman and Doomsday get? And I'm proud of this particular calculation, but pride comes before a fall, and I'm probably going to end up eating it on home release with more careful observation. But in repeat viewings, I think you can pin down Diana checking her email from Bruce at 11.29 p.m. on November 12th. And a little over an hour later, Superman is in space above Metropolis, and it's still night for him for about three minutes and then he experiences the sunrise. Well, if you place Metropolis by the Chesapeake Bay, you know that sunrise would be at 6.41 a.m. at sea level. And so Superman is experiencing sunrise about six hours earlier. And from that, you can derive his approximate altitude. It comes out to roughly 535 kilometers or 333 miles above sea level. And you can use that estimation on half a dozen other little observations which manage to correlate with reality and consistency, like the relative lack of fallout or why we get an orange aurora and potentially why we didn't get an electromagnetic pulse despite a high altitude detonation but I think I'm eating into my nuke notes. So let's segue. One of the obvious observations is in estimating Superman's speed by taking the travel distance over travel time. But onto our second topic, the issue of speed. I intentionally didn't get into it with the fight, partially because I'm still waiting for home release and partially because I don't think Superman has that kind of super speed multi-tool that many imagine from The Flash or from the comics. In a grounded setting, it's almost a story-breaking power, which subjects Superman's every choice to second-guessing, as if you had an eternity to do something different and all the time in the world to execute it. And I think I've said before that he probably has above peak human reality action and reflexes, something much closer to a pro gamer than a supernatural speedster. And that makes him more relatable and inside our frame of reference. And I think that's reinforced by something subtle in the story, and that's Clark's submitting stories. In some traditions, Clark can clack out an entire story in seconds to support his superhero habit on the side. And that feat shows that he operates on a different frame of reference when he can be creative and calculating and accomplish an article fit for print in the blink of an eye. Yet, what happens in BVS? Clark gets chewed out by Perry for his lack of copy on football and fundraisers. Now, maybe Clark likes fighting with Perry and wants to make a statement by not doing the story he was assigned to do, but the confrontation comes from Perry going into Clark's Dropbox. So, I'm inclined to think that if Clark could just super speed out two sensational stories in seconds, he would. And in a way... This makes every story that Clarks decide to actively pursue and engage more meaningful, and it makes being a journalist something that he takes seriously, not just an inconvenience that he keeps at bay with his powers. So speaking of Clark Kent, let's turn to topic number three, the return of Clark Kent. 
I see some stress about the difficulty of bringing Clark back, but to me, it seems really rather easy. The audience only needs two pieces of information. One, that the two dozen funeral attendees know that Clark is Superman, and two, Clark faked his own death for the sake of a story. That's it. Two lines of dialogue suggesting or reinforcing those points, and the audience can unpack for themselves how Clark's return can be excused or explained. The open casket funeral isn't a problem. We can only visually identify two of the the attendees, Martha and Lois, but the credits name Pete, Lana, and Father Leone. And that last person is especially important because in Man of Steel, we're not given the nature of Clark's relationship to Father Leone. All that we know is that Clark opens up to him and tells him that he's Kal-El. Well, whether they had a relationship before this or not, it's clear that they maintained a relationship, such that Father Leone is one of the few select guests at Clark's funeral, erasing any doubt whether he could connect Superman with Clark Kent. And that means that five out of the five characters that we can name at Clark's funeral all knew and supported his secret. So it isn't hard at all to imagine that everyone at the funeral knew that Clark was Superman at that point in time. And it's not like that's necessarily a radical idea that a close knit community might come to know the secret eventually. After all, isn't that exactly what happens with most renderings of the Justice League? So that means that they'll all support whatever story Clark needs to say so that he can return. So all we need is a story that works. And like we've been examining all episode, you can find inspiration within reality. So how are premature obituaries typically addressed? Most often, it's either a mistake, an assumption, or intentional deception. Mistakes are accidental publications, misidentified bodies, misunderstandings, or name confusions, all inapplicable here. In terms of assumption, you have those missing in action, brushes with death, long disappearances, or huge disasters, which is how the issue was resolved in the comics. However, under deception, you have fraud, hoaxes, imposters, and faked deaths. Of course, we have character constraints too, so we can't frame somebody for faking Clark's death, but he can give a reason that the world would understand and excuse. Between Batman and Doomsday, Clark has a reputation for investigating dangerous things. So if organized crime, like intergang, was one of those things, he could explain his fake funeral as a necessary deep cover to keep his friends and family safe as he assembled his story. In truth, Batman and Lois would help Clark write and source that story, but one of the best things about this explanation is that it reinforces the reporter rationale and there's no requirement that Clark and Superman come back at the same time. Regardless, if you don't like this, there are many other ways to bring him back and they are not in a corner because of this particular part of the story. Bringing beings back from the dead brings us to topic number four, rebirth. Heavily associated with resurrection and returns, DC is rebranding with rebirth, and it's easy to raise reservations. But if you set aside your cynicism and just enjoy the ride for the entertainment it's meant to be, it's been a huge week for a Flash and Superman fan with some landmark stories, excellent art, and emotional content. If your reservations are stealing your joy and you're having trouble either letting go or opening up your heart or mind, a little perspective might be in order. As Jeff Johns said in his recent interview with Seth Meyers, quote, we're in a really good place place if what we're complaining about is comic books. Unquote. It's so true. I'm not going to say that these characters don't matter and that you shouldn't take them seriously. 40 plus episodes, you know that I do, but don't lose sight of the larger picture. If you aren't able to be happy with something meant to make you happy, no one says that you have to be, but either find a way, hope, heal, or move on and quit making yourself miserable. It isn't healthy to fester in hate, and it's petty to try to rain on the excitement of others, or to let your own disappointment dominate your every discussion. I've said it before that Wally West 
West is probably the only superhero who can make Superman second to me sometimes. So when Wally went away, essentially retiring in Infinite Crisis, if I couldn't find peace, I would have missed out on a decade of developments, stories, and art all over my own bitterness. Instead, I was happy with the time I had. I mourned, moved on, knowing that I could always go back and revisit the past or imagine an exciting future of possibilities, even if forestalled for a while. Or maybe some part of me finds the mechanics of time remnants a mess, but rather than let that be my focus or my takeaway and to royal in revisiting everything I reject about the concept, its execution and adoption, ranting and raving about it endlessly like a record stuck on repeat, I'd rather extract maximum joy from what I found great about the Flash finale. Your same intelligent brain able to analyze, pick apart, and criticize can also lay claim to the excellently executed and the brilliantly built up. It's not that everything you see is good, but being able to see the good in everything. Dostoevsky's next great book, The Idiot, takes off from his near-death experience before the firing squad. In the novel, he recounts what that was like. Three minutes before his expected death, he is able to see life clearly for the first time. He'd never before realized how entrancing a glint of sunlight could be. He is filled with an immense, deep love of the world. Merely to exist seems, at that moment of final revelation, infinitely precious. And then the revised order comes, and it's not over at all. What would it be like to go through one's whole life in such a state of gratitude and generosity? You wouldn't share any of the normal attitudes. You'd love everyone equally. You'd be enchanted by the simplest things. You'd never feel angry or frightened. You would seem to other people to be a kind of idiot. Hence the title of Dostoevsky's book. It's an extreme version of a very interesting step. We're continually surrounded by things which could delight us if only we saw them in the right way. If only we could learn to appreciate them. Dostoevsky was desperate to communicate communicate the value of existence, Marie Curie summed up the challenge as follows. Nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. Rebirth is just another reminder. It's an exciting time to be a DC fan. Eight ongoing DC TV shows with three on order. Two feature films out, one impending home release, one theatrical release in two months, one done filming and one filming as we speak. You get to decide if you want to discuss doom and gloom, or if you have room for a bounty of more. I don't want to get into the you don't know how lucky you are spiel, but even if your heart is so hard that nothing today is for you, nowadays you have the ability to access seven decades of content, and that alone is enough reason to celebrate. Rather than have angst over the recent past, now in our tiny slice of present time, how much will all that hand wringing, worrying, and wrath profit your soul. (laughs) I can't help it. We're attending a Memorial Weekend retreat, so I keep defaulting to sermonizing, but I want you to be encouraged, to be happy. And it's crazy to me to see people endlessly upset over comics. I mean, comics from the Greek, comicos, something fun, amusement, merrymaking, a spectacle. (laughs) Okay, when the Greek comes out and we're talking about rebirth, we get to our fifth odds and end allegory specifically biblical or religious allegory in the Christian canon. I've mostly steered clear of it because I don't have a unified theme or theory for it yet, more like just a collection of stray observations and parallels, which may or may not mean anything. At least with this episode, though, in terms of Superman trusting Martha to Batman and Batman turning from enemy to entrusted with building Superman's legacy, the ones that came to mind were John, Peter, Stephen, and Saul. Jesus entrusts his mother to the disciple he loved, and he he entrusts his bride 
denied the church to the disciple who denied him three times. Jesus restores Peter not simply by forgiving his betrayal, but by entrusting him with something precious and giving him a larger mission. He tells Peter to feed his sheep. The redemptive power of that trust and mission not only resonates with me, but if Clark was raised on similar stories, I imagine it'd be realistic for him to recognize them as applicable in his own situation and explain his actions in part. I'm going to leave the Stephen and Saul of Tarsus Apostle Paul stuff alone for now. On to our sixth topic, going from allegory to allergy only because they sound slightly alike. (laughs) This one's short, I promise. Uh, Basically, I didn't talk about kryptonite as an allergy where Kryptonians have a special and overblown reaction to radiation as an explanation for the weakness. And this is closer to how it's approached in modern tradition and why a tiny dose can affect Superman and even why he can eventually overcome it and become immune to it. While I'm not discounting the possibility of that explanation in the cinematic universe as well, I didn't want to discuss it because Lex and Batman wouldn't have the data on kryptonite biointeractions with living tissue. An allergy is mostly hypersensitivity of the immune system in a living Kryptonian. So unless Superman had submitted himself to study, they wouldn't reliably know what his immune response to kryptonite would be. Then getting into his immune system would be getting into his healing and regeneration factor, which would be getting into Doomsday, the nuke and his death, etc. So I skipped the entire tangent for now because I don't necessarily think it goes anywhere. And because scientifically, an allergic response cannot take place upon first exposure to the allergen. Personally, I'm perfectly happy with the way kryptonite works right now, but between the resurrection and how allergies work and the factors we discussed earlier, they've been so smart and they've kept the door open to endless possibilities down the road. All right, that's it. I'm not out of notes, but I'm out of time. I don't know if you can hear those fireworks, the foot tapping, and the dirty looks that I'm getting, but that's my cue that the not ready are now ready to go. Memorial weekend is a huge thing for me and my family. Until we meet again, be hopeful, be happy to new frontiers and a new age. (laughs) The pioneers gave up their safety, their comfort, and sometimes their lives to build our new West. They were determined to make the new world strong and free, an example to the world. Some would say that those struggles are all over, that all the horizons have been explored, that all the battles have been won, that there is no longer an American frontier. And we stand today on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of unknown opportunities and perils. Beyond that frontier are uncharted areas of science and space, unsolved problems of peace and war, unconquered province of ignorance and prejudice. I'm asking each of you to be pioneers towards that new frontier. My call is to the young in heart, regardless of age, can we carry through in an age where we will witness not only new breakthroughs in weapons of destruction, but also a race for mastery of the sky and the rain, the ocean and the tides, the far side of space, and the inside of men's minds. All mankind waits upon our decision. A whole world looks to see what we shall do. And we cannot fail that trust, and we cannot fail to try.
flags, don my clothes. It's a revolution, I suppose. We'll paint it red to fit right in. Whoa. I'm breaking in, shaping up, and checking out on the prison bus. This is it, the apocalypse. Whoa, I'm waking up. I feel it in my bones, enough to make my systems blow. son.